Well, it is a great uh, privilege for me to be here today. Thank you to the elders and leadership for giving me uh, this opportunity. And I bring you greetings from Twin City Bible Church and from my wife as well. She thoroughly enjoyed her time of fellowship here with you uh, not too long ago. Uh, it's just a real joy to be with other people. You don't really have to know them personally, you know, but if they love Christ and they love God's Word, then you automatically have a lot in common. It doesn't take long to enjoy fellowship with one another. You know, even though we're not blood relatives, we can be a lot closer than we are even to some of our family members at family reunions. I don't know what yours are like, but I've got some I don't relate to very well. And we'll leave it there. Our church went through an expansion about eight years ago, and we're about to hopefully do it again in the next year. But at that time, we added a playground to our facilities, and uh, I learned something about playgrounds that they've changed through the years since what I remember a playground was. Some of the items they don't allow anymore. I think they consider them unsafe or something. <laughs> I remember the the round merry-go-round thing that spun very fast, you know, and you would you would get on the outside of it and and make it go faster and faster. If you were really brave, you'd try to stand in the center without holding on to anything to see if you could do it. And I loved that that item. <laughs> I miss the sight of children flying through the air, you know. <clears throat> I don't think they do seesaws anymore, what I can tell. Now, of all the different attractions on the normal playground when I was growing up, that's the one I liked the least, was the seesaw. It, it was way too much work. The, the payoff wasn't there for me compared to the work. And I never uh, really uh, got the point of just going up and down. And, and the down moments sometimes were painful. <laughs> but I do have to admit that seesaw is an incredible picture of the reality of the Christian life. Uh, the whole idea of ups and downs and ups and downs in life, that is accurately portrayed in the action of that playground seesaw. And by ups and downs in life, I just mean this, that on one hand, we can be up, we can be in that time where we sense a lot of joy in our walk with the Lord, we have confidence about the future. Uh, our, our assurance of salvation is not suffering in any way. We're very confirmed in our trust in the Lord. And on the other hand, we can be down. We live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, even the strongest believer can experience conflict in their soul, the conflict of doubt, perhaps. And they can suffer great disappointment about life and be in the midst of despair. So what about all of that? Does the Bible have anything to say about times like those? And of course, the answer is yes. You can indeed find in Scripture examples of despair and hopelessness and despondency and depression and disappointment. And I don't have time to show you the connection, but you find in Scripture those times of despair and hopelessness and so forth related to such causes as these. Uh, unfulfilled, unfulfilled expectations, that's a huge one. What we thought life would be, and we compare that to reality, and the 
the gap between those two can produce times of disappointment and discouragement. There's a relationship between uh, our uh, ignorance of Scripture and our passivity towards Scripture and our disobedience of Scripture. There's a relationship to all that to despair. Misplaced hope, for example, putting our hope in in circumstances, that's very common. Living by wrong priorities, the things we value are wrong, and the things we pursue are just not that important, and we can be left with a sense of emptiness. Prayerlessness, certainly. Philippians 4 tells us we give our burdens to the Lord and we can experience peace. So when we are in a time of prayerlessness, it feeds all that potential despair and hopelessness. There's a connection in Scripture between ingratitude, not being grateful, and despair. Overall, I just would call it a self-focus. I found one last connection between Scripture when I studied some of this, and it's in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, after being swallowed by the great fish. It says Jonah was in distress. So definitely try to avoid that one. That's... When it comes to looking in Scripture for help, for me, any passage of Scripture can do that, but especially the Psalms. The Psalms are especially full of honest accounts of difficulty and trial and suffering, and yet of also victory in the midst of suffering. So I've picked a Psalm for our study today that is especially clear in its presentation of all that. It's Psalm 42. So please join me there in Psalm 42. 42. In this psalm, we will see this seesaw effect, this seesaw of emotions, seesaw of thinking. On one hand, we find the author of this psalm expressing confidence in God. On the other hand, we'll find him expressing discouragement, despondency. So let's study it together, but let's study it with this in mind. It's more than just the story of somebody in the past, the distant past. Let's see it as instruction on how all of God's people, all believers of all time, are to overcome discouragement and despair. Now, it should be noted before we begin here that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 actually go together. In fact, they they were likely one psalm originally. You find this refrain in Psalm 42, verse 5. You find it repeated in verse 11, and then you find it in Psalm 43, verse 5, the same refrain. There are other repeated expressions and ideas in these two psalms. In some manuscripts, they actually are uh, put together as one psalm. But somewhere along the way, it, it appears they divided the two just because it was better in its use, liturgical use in worship. I do need to explain that I'm not going to deal with every word in this psalm. I'm not even going to go through it, and a little bit of Psalm 43 as well. I'm not going to go through in the strictest verse-by-verse manner. manner. I'm more interested in just the overall points that are being made based upon the content. So I'm, I'm going to, in a sense, kind of comb through these psalms, so to speak, more than once and categorize what is found under three basic points. I'm going to pick out ways these points are supported. I'm going to mainly focus on Psalm 42. Again, just a few introductory comments here at the beginning of the psalm. It says, for the choir director, 
There's an introductory statement there. For the choir director, a maskal of the sons of Korah. A maskal is a psalm of instruction. It one that, it's one that provides counsel, wise counsel on some topic. In this particular maskal, we find counsel about living in difficult times, in times of trial. We don't know the specific author. It's written by the sons of Korah to be used in worship. That's why it's addressed to the choir director. The sons of Korah were this choice group of singers who produced and performed music while the tabernacle was in the wilderness, and then after the construction of the temple, then in Jerusalem. But we don't know which man wrote it. But even so, we do know where he was. Look down at verse 6. He says in verse 6, in the middle there, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. So you'll know that's this region that's beyond the Jordan River, it's northeast of Jerusalem. It's in the area where Mount Hermon was located. And the point is that the writer was far removed from his home. He was far removed from his normal life. He was far away from his normal place of, of ministry, his normal place of, of a sense of usefulness, away from what was familiar, away from the comforts of home, the conveniences of home and relationships. We don't know why he was there, but for this person who wrote this, it was a difficult, discouraging, and disappointing situation. But like I said, these psalms speak to every believer, every true worshiper, whatever your difficulty is, whatever your particular reason might be for despair at times. Let's comb through these psalms together, and we're going to categorize what we find in these. In this way. We're going to look at three guarantees for true worshipers of God. Just guarantees, things that are, that are guaranteed, absolutely true, related to existence in a fallen world. Here's guarantee number one. Life includes suffering. Life includes suffering. Now we know that. I'm telling you what you already know today. We're not immune to it just because we belong to the Lord. Our lives include suffering. And the psalm opens with this moving expression of the author's intense longing. So go back to verse 1 now in our comb through. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Here's what he's doing. He's comparing this longing in his inner man, his soul, to, to that of a, of a small deer during a time of drought that is desperate for some water. As he pants, that just means to long for something. It means to have this consuming desire for something. It's a way for the writer to express his, his spiritual thirst. It, it's a thirst. He, he knew he needed help. It was a thirst that's only satisfied, he says, by the living God. Now, there are a lot of things people can get consumed with. Many desires that can capture someone's attention. But in our passage, it's true spiritual desire. 
as God's people, we, we should be like this. We should long for God in the same way that, that an animal longs for water so it doesn't die. And so the psalmist is expressing that was true about him. The problem is that just for the animal, in the summer heat, especially when water is scarce, so too this author is saying that his joy has, seems to have dried up. Verse 2, when shall I come? and appear before God. That verb appear is just a way to express attendance with God's people, gathering together attendance for them in the sanctuary. That's where he longed to be. He longed to be home. He, He longed for life to be normal again. He longed to be in the sanctuary, to, to go there to worship. He, he, he longed for this deeper personal awareness of God, but he was far away from all that, far away from home and the joy of all that. He was lonely. He was overwhelmed with that sense of loneliness, and he, and he felt alienation. You ask yourself that. Have you ever felt like you were going through something alone that no one else really can understand. No one can really understand the turmoil or the pain of life that you're experiencing. He felt that. Jump down to verse 6. I warned you, I'm not going through it just verse by verse. I normally do that, but not here. Verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. I mean, this longing was attached to his soul being downcast and, and gloom. It is the gloom associated with this deep, deep need. And the gloom, it just seemed like it was too much to bear for him. No doubt this was not at all how he thought life would turn out. Again, we don't know all the details of why he was there, all the specifics, but it, it certainly was not what he had planned for his life. How it's supposed to go. We do have it in our minds how life should go. And then we can find ourselves in a situation that doesn't fit with that, that plan. But we don't do this, but we're almost tempted to to sort of say that to God. God, look, I, I could have helped you with this if you had asked me. I mean, I've got it all written out. Here's where we're supposed to be. It was hard for this author to describe it. But he looked around where he was, and the location where he was, with all this this surrounding imagery, became actually a good way to illustrate it. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. That was in the region where he was. That region where he was evidently stuck, there were a lot of waterfalls in 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 the deeper canyons of the area where the water would rush down. Uh, to eventually form the Jordan River. And the cascading water would produce a lot of sound. That's what he calls the deep calling to deep. That's what that's referring to there. One roar of water seemingly uh, summoning another roar of water. There's even a nuance of a kind of flash flood in the language that he uses as water would just kind of rush over the rocks down the canyons, really capable of sweeping people away. So the psalmist looks around and he goes, it's like that. He uses the imagery to form the description of how he felt, like someone being tossed to and fro from the waves or back and forth, swept away, sinking. Seemingly no hope of rescue. His trials were mounting. and They seemed overwhelming to him. 
But notice something significant. And here, here's where you see the mix in this man. He nevertheless knew in the deepest part of his heart that all of this was somehow being directed by the Lord. Notice the use of the pronoun you're there. At the sound of your waterfalls, <laughs> your breakers, your waves. I mean, that refers to God. On the faith side of this seesaw experience was this psalmist's understanding that even the trial he was in somehow was under God's sovereign control. He'd been taught well. So what a tension this is for us. What a seesaw of thinking and emotions we can go through in this broken world, even as true followers of God, but this is normal life in a fallen world. Life includes suffering. And what added to the pain, very interesting here, what added to the pain was his memories of how life used to be. Go back to verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I, I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a, a multitude-keeping festival. The, the, the juxtaposition of these two verbs here, the verb remember and pour out, show how joy and sorrow can be mingled. He remembers good times, but yet he's in pain and he pours out his soul in prayer. It's interesting. He could have just said, you know, I pray. <laughs> but, he, but he puts it in, this, in a real figurative sense. He uses this expression, pour out. I mean, that's a way of saying he was expressing everything about his being, just pouring it out, his spiritual being given to his prayer. And mixed in is all the memories of the good times he had, times of being in close fellowship with the Lord, when life was better, my walk was better, represented by what was the, the joy of his heart, going with other believers to the house of God. I mean, that's... I mean, we, if we really are in a time of walking close to the Lord and experiencing joy, we are not separate from the corporate body of Christ. We're plugged in. We're enjoying that. It goes hand in hand. Even especially during those special times of feast, he mentions that. A multitude-keeping festival. And the point is that he recalls his participation with a throng of pilgrims going to the sanctuary, and it was jubilant with a voice of shouting and praising and thanksgiving. We call those mountaintop experiences, right? Mountaintop experiences. So even though he was through it in a difficult time at the moment, nevertheless, his mind was drawn back to remember something positive from the past. But ironically, those pleasant memories from the past end up intensifying the source of discouragement in the present. Because that's not where he was. It wasn't like that now. Maybe it's the idea that if you'd never known that, it wouldn't be so bad now. But he had known those times. That's the way it is sometimes. Thoughts about what life could be, how things ought to be, how should be, makes times in the valley of dis disappointment even more despairing. Because we have something to compare it to. So all of this is the experience of a true worshiper, the seesaw syndrome. We know God is good. We know that we love Him, and yet there are moments in life where we just feel so far from Him. Circumstances don't at all seem like they're conducive to a life of joy that the worshiper of God ought to experience. That 
is normal life for us in the fallen world. It's what we should expect. Life here is hard. It includes disappointment. I learned this years ago from a pastor, and I've said it many times. This is the Christian life. You've either just come through a trial, or you're in a trial, or you're about to be in a trial. That's the Christian life. Guarantee number one, life includes suffering. Number two, guarantee number two, faithfulness provokes opposition. Faithfulness provokes opposition. Now, amid his circumstances, this psalmist had to endure something else. It was the taunts of those who did not love God, those who were opposed to what was important to this man. And this caused the writer even more grief, so much that he says this, go back to verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all, do- all day long, where is your God? So tears represent his sorrow, and-, and food is a way of saying that this is what he had to take in every day on a continual basis. I'm, I'm having to eat all this difficult trial, day and night. And the metaphor is this of the tears, each tear. Each tear that rolled down his face, it's as if each tear represented the the sentiment of the of the opposition of especially of the lost world. I mean, sometimes you can be hurt by your own people, but especially opposition from the lost world. It, it, it's like each tear expresses the sentiment of those who are against you. Each one cries out to you as it goes down your cheek. Where's your God? How come God's not helping you? And then another one follows. Yeah, where's your God? Your way doesn't really seem to work for you. And the point is that certainly the unbelieving world does not understand our faith. It it is unsympathetic to who we are and our desires. So they inflicted the psalmist with much pain here with their accusations really against God's character. Where's your God? They're casting doubt on God. It's a rhetorical question, really, that just means, I mean, God does not even exist, or else he just will not deliver you. It's foolish to trust him, believe in him. So where is he now? Your faith is just a crutch. It's just something for weak people. They don't understand what it means that God is sovereign. They don't understand how God is working everything for his glory and to shape us to be more like His Son, Christ. There's no understanding that God's will is never thwarted by people and experiences and situations. Nothing changes His will. Nothing thwarts it. Job had to learn that. You see that in Job 42, verse 2. What did he learn? No man can thwart your will. Why don't they know that? Well, but they they live by a different value system, a different worldview. They don't have any understanding of how significant it is that God is a sovereign God. They don't understand God's sovereign justice, his sovereign goodness, his sovereign wisdom, and his love. Even for a true believer, for someone as devout as this psalmist actually was, this was a painful insult. And one that, with each tear that went down his face, began to sort of tempt him to begin to question things and to doubt doubt the character of God. He was in so much sorrow he couldn't eat. Only, only, couldn't eat. Only tears were his daily food. Look at verse 9. 
I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I mean, on one hand, he's actually affirming his faith there. He, he calls God his rock. I will say to God, my rock. <laughs> we're like that. I mean, we, we're not very consistent. In the de- deepest part of his soul, he knew this about God. It's a way of describing God's strength and being secure and safe in the Lord. The psalmist knew that God was a, a fortress and an indefeatable, unassailable fortress, a rock in which he could hide from the overwhelming waves that were coming across him and sinking him and drowning him, the waves of the trial. But at the same time, he couldn't help but feel abandoned, which is a feeling captured in that rhetorical question, why have you forgotten me? I mean, he, he's been remembering God through his trial, but it, God seems to have forgotten him. I mean, he's doing his part. Is God doing his part? It appeared that God was not listening and didn't care. His prayers seemed to go unheard. If you twisted his arm, he's going to give you the right answer. He's going to say, no, I know that's not true. But he's just being honest, saying how he felt. You see, theologically, we do understand it is impossible for God to forget He knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything equally well. He knows everything about you and your life and your circumstances better than you do. He was not surprised as you were. But practically speaking, it can seem like he has forgotten. We call those kind of statements an anthropomorphism. It's a way of describing something to God so we can better comprehend him. Scripture says he, you know, the hand of God or the eyes of the Lord. He doesn't actually have eyes. So it, it, it's making it sound like he's asleep here, basically, like people might be. And the point is that due to God's seeming failure to act, he is suffering, this psalmist is. So much so that he says it goes around mourning, even though he knows that he shouldn't. That term mourning that he uses is a very rich Hebrew word. It, can, it, it has a spectrum of meaning. It, 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 it can mean sort of pale and pasty looking or, 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 or dark. Either way, it, it's a word that's expressing, though, sadness is the point, and grief. So the psalmist chose that word under the inspiration of the Spirit specifically to say that he was emotionally devastated, distraught by how the world and all of its uh, perspectives or other people who don't understand were making the situation even worse for him. So he goes around in this state of sadness and grief because of all this. He uses another word here, oppression. That's a strong one. I mean, that's the word that's used in Exodus 3, verse 9, of of Israel being oppressed in bondage. So here it's a word that suggests even being mistreated in some way, a mistreatment that's intense. It's intense because people are criticizing him about his faith and his worldview and even his own character. In fact, it was so bad, he began to have physical symptoms. Look at verse 10. That can happen, you know as a shattering of my bones, my 
adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I mean, this kind of despair and despondency can result even in physical symptoms and pain. Shattering of my bones literally just means a breaking in my bones. In other words, it, it felt like a crushing blow. Blows to the spirit can actually end up being blows to the body. But once again, it's repeated. Where's your God? That's what they kept saying day after day. God has abandoned you, or at the very least, he's unable to help you. But here he is under this relentless attack, and in his own soul, he feels forsaken by God. He's cast down. Go to Psalm 43. There's just a couple of verses there that reference the same things, really. Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly people and nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust Man, there were ungodly people, see, stirring up this trouble as well. They had no relationship to God. They cared nothing about faithfulness to God. So he uses courtroom, courtroom language here. Vindicate me. Plead my, my case to express his desire that God would rescue him from these people. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 43. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, I've already noted it. He's just saying it again. God seemed to have abandoned him. God seemed to have rejected him. It seemed as if the world was doing just fine compared to him and gaining advantage over him. So he goes about as if he's one lost in his own thoughts, lost in his own trial, lost in his feelings. You add all this up, it was a terrible life situation for him. But he loved God. He knew in his heart that everything God does is right, but he's depressed, disappointed. Life didn't turn out the way he wanted. Made worse by the opposition from others. I understand our situations in a world today can be different when it comes to the specifics, but the basic truths do not change, and they apply to us. That even though we seek to live a life of faithfulness to the Lord as his true worshipers, we'll not only find ourselves in time of great disappointment and despair, but others can make it worse. Co-workers, neighbors, even our own family members. Not only can they not understand what's important to us, but they stand against our worldview and our goals and our desires. We have to hold firm to this and not let them cause us to doubt this is what happened for him. He learned this, that faithfulness provokes opposition. If you're going to try to hang in there, keep pursuing what's right. But there's a third guarantee here. One more thing. That even though we experience the seesaw emotions of life, and even though serving God can be mixed with experiencing times of despair, and even though we might deal with opposition from others, especially the world that makes our trials worse, there's one more thing that will always be true. All that was introduction. Here's the main sermon. Number three. <laughs> number three. Guarantee number three. Trusting God brings relief. Trusting God brings relief. Go back to verse five. He starts talking to himself. Do you know people talk to themselves? Do you talk to yourself? We get worried about people when they do that. But actually, it's okay. 
He did it, the psalmist, verse 5. And the self-talk, we'll call it, has two parts. There's a negative part and a positive part. Here's the negative, verse 5. Why? Now he's talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? That word despair means cast down, bent low. Disturbed means to be in turmoil. It's a word that can even cause, uh, be used to, to talk about a loud sound, you know, a great uproar. I mean, there's a loud noise of uproar in our soul. So here it's used figuratively to describe the deep groans of a painful, discouraged, sorrowful heart, a soul, a soul tossed to and fro by the circumstances. But this self-contemplation moves the psalmist forward to command his soul to do something. And this is important. Important part of the cure for the despairing soul that is spiritually distressed or depressed or distraught. Here's what he tells himself to do. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Do this, self. Now, hope means to wait patiently. You can say it that way. Wait on God. He's not done yet. The story's not over. Wait expectantly for him to work. So this is not a faith in faith kind of thing, just a hope against hope. It's a solid anticipation of God. This is true faith. Faith that is willing to wait on God to act. And this hope allowed him the confidence that despite the present circumstances he was in, he knew that he would get through this and he would come to a point where it'd be more clear to him that he was praising God again. And he would even publicly acknowledge at that point, looking back, he'd be telling people, all that God does is right. He'd be, he would find his joy his mourning turning into joy and gladness. He really is putting his hope in the what we call God's immutability, the immutability of God, his unchanging character. But when we understand that, we get our eyes on that, we focus on that, we put our hope in, in God's unchanging character, that's what begins to bring us the true relief from the despair. So again, talking to yourself like this is okay. I still say it, do it silently, but This is what stirs the mind to start overriding the emotions. Listen, this is something we got to understand. The fact is, our thinking does control and impact our emotions. Why do you think God says this in Romans 12, verse 2? We're tra transformed by the renewing of our feelings. No. By the renewing of our minds. We start to think what is right, what is biblical. And we're transformed. You see, one of our problems is we do talk to ourselves, maybe silently, but we do it the wrong way. We just talk to ourselves about the problem. We dwell on it. We feed it. We complain and grumble about the circumstance. My wife has to correct me on that every once in a while when I'm grumbling about something. You know, Well, why don't you go do this or that? And my answer is usually because I like grumbling to you better. I, I like that. <laughs> I enjoy that. <laughs> But I don't, she says. Anyway. 
That's all the wrong kind of talking, and that just aggravates the situation, makes it worse. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote this in his famous book. You ought to read it called Spiritual Depression. It's Causes and Cure. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, this man's treatment was this. He starts talking to himself. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment and I'll speak to you. Listen, I'm not trying to minimize the terrible things that we can go through the terrible nature of some circumstances. But regardless, we all ultimately do have a choice in our thinking. And it is our thinking that influences how we feel. By the way, hold your place there. Turn over to the Gospel of John real quick, John chapter 14. I was just thinking about this this morning. In John chapter 14, in, in, in Jesus' instructions to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, final set of instructions. He's trying to encourage them, challenge them. You find the same thing there in John 14, verse 1. This is what he tells them. They were troubled. They were in despair because Jesus has made it very clear. Now he's about to depart and leave them. They were in much turmoil, or to put it in Jesus' word, their hearts were troubled. So he says, stop it. (laughs) That's the short version. Don't do that. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Go down to verse 27. Same thing. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I mean, the fact that Jesus is putting it that way says we have a choice. Back to our text in Psalm 42, verse 6. In the second half of the verse, he says, Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. In other words, even in his discouragement, he chose to remember, which here means that he prayed earnestly to the Lord. He didn't, didn't just talk to himself. He took his burden to the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. This is what God does. God commands his own loving kindness. It's that Hebrew word hesed, means his loyal, covenant, unchanging, unconditional love. He commands it to protect his people. And the psalmist knew that, that that kind of faithful love from God would help him or protect him. And he, he saw signs of it each day of his life. If we open our eyes, we see the signs of it. I mean, whatever we've gone through, whatever we're in, we're here right now, today. Here we are. He's brought us this far. He'll help you get through this sermon somehow. <laughs> and even at night... Notice he says there, not just the day, but the night. That's so important. That The night is when isolation and loneliness and despair can seem to be the most oppressive. You know, like when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep. And, and, and whatever problem you're, you're dwelling on and feeding, it's just like this huge, dark blanket covering us. It's a great monster hanging over the bed and it gets bigger. 
Never make life-changing decisions, by the way, at 2 o'clock in the morning. But you know what? The psalmist says, yeah, I have times like that. But you know, even in that time, if I'm thinking right, God's song is still with me. It's God's song. God's the one who gave him something to sing about. Even in the darkest hour. Look at verse 11. We, we saw it in verse 5. Here it is again. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Despite all of his problems, what was going on, he kept beckoning his faith. He kept activating his faith in the Lord. Truly hoping in, waiting for God. Encouraging his heart to trust God with a, a positive expectation that God would come through and do what was wise and best, that God would work for his good somehow with God's perfect wisdom, his perfect plans, his perfect timing, his perfect power. And while hoping in God, the psalmist vowed that he would also praise him for who he is, what he's done, what he was doing, what he was going to do. I, I can't help but remember a, a, a something my father, my father who was a pastor, he always said this in his prayers. And as a kid, I always heard him in his pray, prayers this way. He'd always say this, and God, we will be careful, Lord, to give you all the praise. We're going to be careful to do that. The psalmist was being careful. You see it in, chapter, in Psalm 43. You see it in verse 5 again. Three times he exhorts himself not to be downcast, but to keep hoping. The implication of, for that is it just reminds us that ultimately there is only one solution to the despair. It's God himself. Knowing him and trusting him, and we keep going back to that one solution. Because trusting God brings relief. It really does. So we all have these times. They can either make us or break us. They either drive us closer to God or they drive us further away from him. That's our choice. It all depends on where we're putting our trust. So when you're surrounded by troubles of some sort or discouragement, there's a simple but sure remedy for the angst of the soul. What do I mean by that? I, I've learned this in my own life, and I've learned it as a pastor, that honestly, the situation, the circumstances, are not really the biggest part of the problem. It's the angst of our souls in that circumstance. And as a pastor, I certainly can't promise anybody that their circumstance can change. I can't help them do that necessarily. Sometimes it does, but I think most of the times situations don't. God leaves us in the situation, but he changes us. So that's really the biggest part of the problem. That's where I can help people. That's where we can be helped. It's about the angst. It's about the trouble of our hearts, as Jesus put it. Don't let your heart be troubled. It didn't change the fact that Jesus was departing. Situation didn't change. But their hearts could. That's the worst part of the trial. It's not the trial. The worst part is the angst. And that is what the, the Lord helps us with when we trust him. Perhaps you've heard of this man from church history. He was a famous hymn writer. His name is William Cooper. It's spelled Looks like Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, pronounced Cooper, I think. He wrote some of the church's greatest hymns. 
very gifted composer, but if you read anything about him at all, on the on the human side of things, he went through many times of deep discouragements, frequent bouts of depression. He experienced the very first attacks of all that kind of despair when he was a young man, and he was admitted to an insane asylum for a while where he made several attempts to commit suicide. One of the doctors there gave him a Bible, and he began to read it, and he began to learn about the grace of God. And so he put his trust in Christ, genuinely, and was saved. But despite that conversion and expanding ministry that came out of that, it didn't mean he never struggled again. He still struggled at times with those kind of attacks of discouragement. And each time they drove him to pursue God even more deeply. And out of those soul-wracking experiences, he would write hymns. (laughs) And one of the one of his most famous is titled this, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It ends up being a testimony to the renewed strength and comfort that he would find in his soul. So here's some of the words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Because behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Cowper is saying that he experienced the same kind of relief that this psalmist went back to many times in his life. Just remember this. Life's not always the way we want it. God himself brings breakers and waves. He brings us into new seasons. I mean, I look back on our, on our lives. My, my wife and I, we've been married this past May. I think it was 45 years. We married when we were four. <laughs> and... Up in the hallway upstairs, we have the, the Hall of Fame. It's almost like the Hall of Shame. Our, our photos, you know, from our wedding photos. I mean, some other photos. I'll stop and look at those two young kids. I don't even know who they are. But I think about all the seasons I've been through since then. And I'm, I'm in one now, a season. And there'll be another season to come. God God does all that. He brings us in those new seasons. It could be a move. It could be a change of a job. It could be a season of health issues, maybe something even serious. It could be changes in our finances, a season there. Friends depart, changes in a family situation. But those seasons are brought to us to increase the opportunity for us to worship Him in a new and fresh way. In fact, view each season that way. How is this season, how can it increase my worship of God? God has never changed. He never will. We wander away from Him, but He doesn't leave us. I promise you there's relief in trusting Him. And when we do that, we'll find what this psalmist found encouragement, hope, and we keep going. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in many, many ways 
to trust you, to let not our hearts be troubled, that you give peace, not like the world gives, but you give a different kind of settled peace and confidence, even though the breakers still come and the waves still come and look around, maybe the situation itself hasn't changed at all. But you've proved your faithfulness to us over and over and over by changing us and bringing us through those seasons, those trials, times of loneliness, times of discouragement. Lord, we're confident you'll keep doing that according to your perfect will, that you will do exactly what your word says. You will complete the work you've started in each of your people until the day of Christ. And that you will build your church. You've said that. Nothing will stop that either. Not the problems of the world, not our own personal problems. But Lord, we are confessing that we're frail and weak and we do doubt. We we do struggle from a a default setting of self-focus at times. And Lord, thank you that you're such a forgiving God, that in Christ on the cross, every one of our times of doubt, he paid for already. Every one of our times of not trusting you the way we should or ignoring your word and our times of prayerlessness that he's already paid the price for all those. You poured out your wrath already on all those sins, past, present, and future. So you're not angry with us. You care about us. You love us. And even when you discipline us, it's out of your love. Just to move us further down the path of walking with you, So, Lord, help us with all this. I certainly don't know what people here are struggling with, but it's life in this world. So we come to you, Lord, asking for your help, asking for your wisdom, asking for you to even override terrible circumstances and use them for your glory and our good, because that's the kind of God you are. I pray for anyone here who can't have the confidence of that. They've never come to a place of genuinely trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they really are living life on their own, trying to make it work. Lord, bring them to the end of themselves, that they might cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, so that you might save them. In our Savior's name, amen.